And there you are. <sighs> wow. <laughs> A couple of things struck me from this chant that was, uh, that were instructive and reassuring. Um, the words, uh, I liked hearing revering Buddhas and ancestors. We are one Buddha and one ancestor. Awakening Bodhi mind, we are one Bodhi mind. Uh, that was a great comfort for me just now. Uh, it reminded me that we're not so far apart. In fact, we're one. And looking at your faces, uh, I am deeply supported in this very strange endeavor, uh, which earlier today I was thinking, it's kind of like um, I'm being asked to give an Oval Office talk or something. <laughs> Speak to my world in this time of crisis. A lot of pressure. And then at the end, the Ahe says, by revealing and disclosing our lack of faith and practice before the Buddha, we melt away the root of transgression by the power of our confession and repentance. This is the pure and simple color of true practice, the true mind of faith, the true body of faith. So I confess to you, uh, feeling completely inadequate to speak at this time, and yet here I am on this seat. And as Katagiri Roshi said, he titled a book like this, you have to say something. So I will endeavor to say something. And if there is anything here that's helpful, I am very happy about that. If it's not, as we say in the Shuso ceremony, uh, please wash your ears in the pure waters here of the Atlantic Ocean, and uh, I will endeavor to do my best. Um, as of Friday, March 27th, yesterday evening, there are 26,697 confirmed cases in New York City. 7,091 confirmed cases in Brooklyn. There have been 450 deaths citywide, 102 of them in Brooklyn. 19% of all confirmed cases citywide have even gone to the hospital. I want to first express my grief for the suffering that those numbers represent, my deep gratitude for the many people taking care of those who are currently suffering, boundless gratitude, and for all the people who courageously 
without regard so much to their own well-being, I'm sure they have some regard, are keeping the basic functionings of our city going. Of course, the medical workers who take care of the sick, the people who drive the ambulances. This morning I heard a lot of sirens, kind of for the first time. I, I live on the outskirts of this city, the edge of Coney Island. I don't hear a lot from where I live, but this morning I heard sirens. I feel deep gratitude for the people, the truckers who are delivering us food from the farms, the uh, people who are selling our food to us, people who are delivering our food to us, people who pick up the trash, people who deliver the mail and the packages, and deep gratitude for whoever it is that's keeping all this technology going at this time. It's a mystery to me how it even works, but I know there are human beings working hard to keep us in contact. So I want to offer my deep gratitude to them on my behalf and on behalf of all of us. So about a month ago, um, <clears throat> a world away, uh, having heard over time some of the news filtering from China and then from Italy, and then hearing that there were some cases here in New York, not in the city, but close by, it seemed quite clear to me that this dense, densely populated, hugely populated city was, was not going to be uh, unscathed. And um, I felt energy arise in me to meet this challenge. And I went out and I did some grocery shopping. I thought things would close down pretty quickly, maybe for a few weeks, and then we'd get back to normal. And um, so I, I felt a strong energy meeting this challenge. It was a challenge. And, um, and then when I had done that, I felt this kind of peacefulness, like, okay, I'm ready. And then nothing happened. <laughs> Everything looked normal. We all went about as usual. And um, I thought, well, maybe this is not going to happen. Maybe I was wrong. And then, of course, it did start slowly to come closer and closer uh, to the point where we are now. But there was this odd feeling of waiting, just like watching life be completely normal and somehow knowing that something was about to happen that uh, could be cataclysmic. And it reminded me of a wonderful long sequence in a movie by Akira Kurosawa-sama, a great filmmaker whose films I deeply love. And he made a film called Kagemusha. Um, anybody seen Kagemusha? I can see your faces, yes. So I've never forgotten this particular part of it. But um, 
it's, it's, it takes place in a time in Japan, in feudal Japan, when there was a lot of clan warfare. Um, and the, the movie builds up to a great battle. It's a historical battle in Japanese history. And there is a um, incredibly long sequence. Uh, well, it's just one, it's actually just one shot held for a very long time of two great armies separated by a field facing each other on horseback and foot with their armor and their weapons. And in the background, you can see them, you know, on either side of the screen, one army and the other facing each other. And in this long single shot, you can hear the wind blowing, just a breeze. And in the back, straight back, there's a forest. And the, tree, the leaves are fluttering. The leaves are fluttering. And for an endless, endless amount of time, Kurosawa had the courage to just let us in the audience sit with that image, knowing what was likely to happen. But in this moment of stillness where everything seemed normal, the sun was shining, you could hear birds, the leaves fluttering, the horses were kind of neighing and shifting around and a little bit restless. And then a fierce battle erupts. And it felt a little bit like that walking around Brooklyn for a week or two. And, uh, and then it's come to us now. It's come to us now. So there was challenge and then there was waiting. And then a sense of, for me, a sense of resolution. I can meet this. I'm ready. Whatever happens, I can be here for this. And now we've been several weeks. Uh, in our own version of solitude, I live with my cat. So that's it for me, except when I meet you online. Some of you are with family members. Um, but we each have our own version of what this social isolation, as they call it, or more literally physical isolation means. And I've noticed that, um, that my first week was primarily trying to figure out how to make the tech work, what I was supposed to do next in this kind of amorphous amount of time where, you know, I had a, a different kind of rhythm to my life. I had the separation between home and work. And now it's all taking place within two walls, two rooms, and I'm just, um, uh, I have to remember what clothes to put on and how to arrange. Uh, the area behind me is, uh, that red carpet is usually my cat's playground. But then when I teach yoga, it's my yoga studio, and, and now it has to be the backdrop for this talk and um, different outfits for different times. <laughs> So I'm making great use of my alarm function on my phone. Just keep having alarms going off all day. 
Um, but uh, I'm starting to get into that rhythm, very weird rhythm. It seems a little bit abstract, not particularly physical. And, uh, and so I've noticed in the last few days now, there's space for feeling. And I've noticed uh, as the stories come up, um, various feelings arise. So first of all, I feel very uh, grateful uh, in a, I feel for the moment safe. I feel protected. And now I'm looking out uh, not only my many windows, which don't show me much, kind of a, a tree and some backyards, and sometimes I see some kids playing, but there's now uh, this, uh, these portals that come in through this computer, the portals of my solitude, I've started to call it. The ways I look out from this place and see the world. And it's become very important to me to make a practice of looking out and seeing the world. And the stories and the words and the faces that are coming to me, uh, well, when they're coming through Zoom, they're generally Sangha and they're a source of joy and comfort and um, connection. And other portals that come through media uh, are bringing me stories of suffering. And for that, I feel grief arising. And so my practice now is being present with this grief. Sometimes I feel a little anger too. I confess and repent. Um, so this is a uh, part of my world, but I also see the maple tree budding. I see the birds more and more flying around. Sometimes the sunshine comes in, sometimes the rain. It's all part of my portals of solitude, allowing me to be a witness to the world. And then this reminded me of our Buddhist Bodhisattva of Compassion, whose name in Sanskrit, uh, we say Avalokiteshvara. Are you familiar with that name? It's also in Chinese Guanyin. We have a beautiful statue in our center. Avalokiteshvara, which is the way I learned to say the name in Sanskrit, um, means, uh, divine being who gazes down at the world. But I was looking this up and I found out actually that's a later Sanskrit name. The earlier Sanskrit name is Avalokitesvara. Avalokitasvara. Avalokitasvara. And there's a, a, some subtle differences there. First of all, there's no Lord or divine being. There's just gazing down or gazing down at the sounds of the world, gazing down at the sounds of the world. And this, uh, this version is the one that went to China 
and became the word guanyin or guanxian. So it's hearing the sounds of the world, but there's also gazing and seeing the activities of the world. And I feel like that is the gift of our solitude. We all can um, become Avalokiteshvara or Avalokiteshvara. We have the opportunity. We're busy. Some people are busier than others. I know families homeschooling children and doing many things, working from home. Uh, but there is this sense that we can look out on the world and there's a little bit of time to be connecting ourselves to it. We can become the, the bodhisattva of compassion. We can become that archetype. So in order to, to have that spaciousness, even in the kind of constrictions of our limited space, and I know some of you are able to, to enjoy some more space, more space than others. Um, I literally have not gone outside, but um, I, so I have two rooms. Um, some may have less even space than that, and some of you may have some access to a much more outdoor space and not feel the confinement. But um, even so, even in this very safe and restricted environment, um, the practices of grounding and relaxing, which I believe Tia brought up last week, I, I think I heard her talk about that, um, become very vital. And so I wanted to say a little bit more about grounding and relaxing as a physical practice. So we, we do all want to be grounded. Uh, that's a, a good idea. And it's also a good idea to be relaxed, but there's idea and then there's what's happening. So grounding is literally feeling the ground. Of course, you know, understand, I understand. I'm giving you my sense of it. Sometimes I call it rooting as a plant sends roots down deep into the ground. Sometimes I think of it as anchoring, just as a ship drops an anchor. I don't know if they still do that, but old-fashioned ships do. And this process starts with a thought or an intention. Um, we are always in touch with the ground, uh, unless we're, I don't know, some of us might have learned to fly, but anyway. Um, we're always in touch with the ground, we just don't know it. So it takes a moment of intention, and then ascending of that intention like roots down into the ground. So this can be done in any position. In Zazen, we do it in the seated position. So as we sit, we can actually feel what's under us. It might be a Zafu. It might be a blanket. It might be the ground. It might be a chair. Lying down is another great way Feel the ground with the whole body, the whole back of the body, standing through the bottoms of the feet, and even walking each time a part of the foot re-enters connection with the ground. 
So these are all intentional moments of connecting to the ground that bring us into a kind of feeling of stability. Um, and if we don't practice them regularly, we uh, are mostly not aware that we're touching the ground. We are living in the kind of the uh, ozone or the, uh, um, the space of our, our thinking, our, our thinking mind. So grounding and then relaxing is extremely important. And I'd like to mention, and again, I want to apologize. Many of you have practices which enable you to experience this and practice this all the time. So this is not new to you, but anyway, I will go on with my description. Um, I think there is a misunderstanding about relaxing. I think often for people relaxing is collapsing as one way of relaxing. It's just collapse, collapse into the support of a, a surface, uh, lounging could be another way to describe that. Um, also just doing something different is sometimes considered relaxing, um, taking our mind off our worries. Um, I'd like to, present relaxing more in terms of the breath and uh, so when we actually have the intention to watch the breath we will watch a breath come in and we'll watch a breath grow go out and that exhale in particular can give us a sense of letting go or relaxing. So we're letting go of a kind of extraneous effort or tension, held tension. Um, and this can be physical and this can be mental. So this is um, why I think Zazen, the practice we do of Zazen, the physical practice, we're instructed to uh, watch our posture and watch our breath helps us to find this grounding and this relaxation. And both words to me convey a sense of balance. When we're grounded, we're in balance. And this balance is a relaxed balance. So what comes to my mind is uh, watching a a baby soon to be a toddler learning to stand. Um, we stand pretty naturally, but we have to learn how to do it and we have to practice. And um, these very young humans don't hold themselves up with any idea. They get up and they fall down. They get up and they fall down. They get up and they fall down. And then gradually, Without any concept of it, they learn to balance. And then they learn to balance and imbalance, that, that play of balance and imbalance to take them into movement. And again, sometimes when they start, they fall down. They stand up, they start to walk, and they fall down. Because they don't 
the body doesn't quite have it yet, this, this notion of balance and imbalance kind of simultaneously being held. But this is our nature. This is our, this is our true nature in the body to be able to do this. So this kind of uh, grounding and this kind of relaxation can also be said to be balance. In the yoga tradition that I also have practiced for many years, it's called uh, in Sanskrit, stidam and sukham. Stidam or stida means stability. So this is balance, this is grounding, this is uprightness. And sukha is the opposite of dukkha. Sukha can be translated as ease. Um, we often call dukkha we translate it as suffering, and more and more teachers are pointing out that that's not a very good translation of that word. It's not exactly right. And even the English word isn't what it used to be. So um, suffering used to mean to suffer meant to allow. So um, had a very different connotation. But um, dukkha usually means it's uh, the image I've been told by teachers is it's like a wheel that, uh, an iron wheel that's not quite smooth. And so as it rolls along, there's this bumping. So it's uncomfortable. And the first noble truth is that there is discomfort. So the promise of our practice is to find the opposite of that discomfort a kind of smoothness. So as we roll along, there's a smoothness. And that's the ease or the sukha. Um, another way of talking about this, Dog, Dogen talks about Fukan Zazengi, in Fukan Zazengi talks about Zazen as the Dharma gate of repose and bliss. So repose is, when one is in repose, there's a sense of stillness and stability. And then bliss is, is the translation of sukha. And this is, can be practiced in any position. And the only difficulty is we have to remember to do it. So I was thinking about this uh, grounding. It's like as we become still and we ground, we're taking our intention all the way through the body into the ground. And out of the ground can arise a new intention. And this new intention can arise from a question which is, what is the most important thing right now? What is most important right now in this place of grounding and ease? What's most important? And the answer to that question is not nearly as important as remembering to ask it and asking it from this place of stability and ease. Not from the place 
of anxiety and imbalance, but from stability and ease. What is most important? And then eventually, what can arise going back up, going, growing out of the ground like a plant or a tree, is a vow. Having determined what's most important then, and having that happen over and over again, and of course it changes, but what can arise from that ground, from that ease, is a vow. So I um, wanted to find something more about that word, kind of a funny English word. Um, and it does seem to come from um, a Latin root, which is votum, the same word that voting comes from. <laughs> but that was interesting. And so um, in the Roman culture, ancient Roman culture, uh, to take a vow was to do something exceptional. It was not part of ordinary life. It was a promise made by an individual at some critical moment, not ordered by anybody else, not part of a recurring ritual, but uh, in the moment of crisis, out of intention arises this promise or vow. And um, in reading this, I thought how, how incredibly wonderful in a sense, because we are in this moment of crisis and we're being given this opportunity to come to an understanding of what's most important and a vow might arise. This is not a, a constructed intellectual process. This is a very grounded, arising from this grounding, arising from the breath and the ease, a vow might arise. And for each of us, that vow can be different. It's not the normal everyday, everyday way of things. It's, it's something unique to the moment and it arises and it moves up into our consciousness so this cycle has happened from our intention back up to our intention, to our awareness, to how now do I live this vow? How do I embody this vow? Um, in the Diamond Sutra, the question that arises over and over again, Subhuti asks the Bhagavan, how does a bodhisattva stand, walk, and think? That question. Um, so what is it as our intention, and then how do we embody it in all the postures? All the postures. Posture of making dinner, washing the dishes, teaching your kid. You know, all the postures, crying for the suffering in the world. What is our intention? What is most important right now? And if a vow arises, 
than appreciating and recognizing it. This, this chant we do at the beginning is Dogen's vow. We say we in it, but it actually was written I. This was Dogen's vow. This arose at the end of his life from his practice of grounding, of letting go. I've been using the word relaxing today, but I think um, Tia might have said let go, which is the same thing. So now I want to say a little bit of something about vowing that came to mind. Um, on my altar, I have a, a statue of the Bodhisattva Samantabhadra. Um, Samantabhadra is not such a well-known and popular Bodhisattva, but um, he's kind of important um, in two major sutras, um, the um, Avatamsaka Sutra and the Lotus Sutra. Uh, which some of you are studying. So, um, Samantabhadra means um, literally uh, universal or all around and auspicious or worthy. Um, and Samantabhadra has 10 vows, 10 vows that arose from the ground. Um, so, I will just let you know what they are. Um, it would be another it would be kind of a long class to go into these vows, but just to let you know what they are, and you can look them up too. Um, the first vow is to pay respect and homage to all Buddhas. So not just one Buddha, all Buddhas. And so you can you have great leeway to determine what that means. To praise the Tathagata the thus come one, the one who is present. Who's that one? To make abundant offerings, which means generosity, the first of the paramitas. This is an enormously important and wonderful time to be generous. Uh, I read one of my portals. There's a a little group of people, or I don't know, there might be quite a large group actually, they're an online, uh, it's on Nextdoor. Um, they're gathering money so that they can send a meal for the medical workers over to, I think it's called Brooklyn, it's one of the Brooklyn hospitals that's in the Park Slope, Gowanus area. And um, they uh, engage with a different restaurant every day and they hire the restaurant to make a meal for all the medical workers at that hospital. And you can go online and contribute to it. Um, and so once a day, our frontline workers are getting a really delicious meal, plus that particular restaurant is being supported. So um, I think this is a wonderful example of generosity. But there are so many ways, so many ways to be generous now. To repent, number four, to repent misdeeds and evil karmas. So we engage in this practice quite strongly and sincerely and actively of looking at our misdeeds and our evil karmas. To rejoice in others' merits and virtues. Great opportunity to do that right now. To request the Buddhas to continue teaching. 
to open ourselves up to the Dharma coming from all the Buddhas. Again, this is Buddhas, not Buddha. To request the Buddhas to remain in the world. To pray that awakened beings continue to be awake. To pray that our own awakening continues in awakening. Um, to follow the teachings of the Buddhas at all times. To accommodate and benefit all living beings. And to transfer all merits and virtues to benefit all beings. So this is what we do when we um, chant. And then, you know, in our service, the kokyo will chant a dedication or an echo. This is the transfer of merit. It's extremely important in the Mahayana tradition of the Bodhisattva. We do not do things for our own benefit, but we do it for all beings. So this is the tenth of the vows. I just want to say a word about illness. Yesterday, uh, I was involved for a while with my first cousin and his wife. It's kind of ironic, but the day before yesterday, my cousin from the West Coast couldn't reach me by phone, and she got very scared. And so she called this other cousin back here, who lives in New York, and not in New York City, but a little bit outside the city, to see if they knew if I was okay. And I just, my phone was in another room, and I didn't know she called. But anyway, I, um, I got messaged, and I messaged back only to find out that both of these cousins, who were supposed to be looking after me, were both extremely sick with all the usual uh, symptoms that we hear about corona. And, um, and then uh, they were going to get tested, and that was good. And of course, the testing doesn't come back right away, but they did show up negative for flu, which meant even more likely that their symptoms were probably COVID-19. And then I got another message that one of them was very sick in the night and couldn't breathe. And so I got in touch with her. And for most of the day, they were putting in, as they were told to do, a phone call to the doctor. And the doctor was not able to return the phone call, probably so busy. And uh, so finally, I and other family members were saying, just go to the hospital, just go. And so they did, she did. And she got there, and uh, they had a tent outside. They're not letting people in with symptoms anymore. And uh, they tested her oxygenation level, and they said, uh, you've got enough oxygen, you should go home and take Tylenol. And call us again if your lips turn blue. <laughs> she was in a lot of discomfort and a lot of pain, and she's a pretty hardy person. She's not, um, she's kind of a, a early 60s, youthful, active, rose, you know, travels. Um, not sickly, um, but she has a lot of discomfort. Um, but very relieved to not be serious enough to have to go into the hospital. So I think more and more as the weeks go on, uh, maybe some of you already know people who are sick. Um, 
I hope no one in our Sangha experiences this, but it's not unlikely to happen. So I wanted to say just a little bit of something about uh, sickness. Um, I was reminded of two um, things, and you know, I'm not going to talk at length about this because I don't have much time, but there's a scripture called the Holy Teaching of Vimala Kirti. Um, note that. You might want to read it. It's not long. Vimala, it's a Mahayana scripture. Vimala Kirti is a lay person, a lay man, um, who taught from his sickbed. In his little room, he taught from his sickbed. And I'll just read you a few sentences from one of the chapters. Um, the Buddha wanted to send bodhisattvas to visit Vimalakirti in his illness. They didn't want to go because he was um, a very eloquent debater and he always bested them in any Dharma discussion. So no one wanted to go. But uh, Buddha finally convinced Manjushri he should go. And um, so then when Manjushri said, okay, I'll go, the other bodhisattvas said they'd go too. So this is a little tiny room. Thereupon in that assembly, the bodhisattvas, the great disciples, the chakras, the Brahma, the Lokapalas, and the gods and goddess, goddesses all had the thought, surely the conversations of the young prince Manjushri and that good man will result in profound teaching of the Dharma. Thus, 8,000 bodhisattvas, 500 disciples, a great number of chakras, Brahmas, Lokapalas, and many hundreds of thousands of gods and goddesses all followed the crown prince Manjushri to listen to the Dharma. And so this sutra goes on with Nimalakirti's teaching. So how do we teach when we're sick? Um, there's another story about that in our tradition. And again, I refer you to something that you can look up on your own. It's a story in the Book of Serenity. It is chapter 94. It is the story of our ancestor Dungshan when he was dying. The name of it is Dungshan is unwell. This is the case. When Dungshan was unwell, a monk asked, you are ill teacher, but is there anyone who does not get ill? Dungshan said, there is. The monk said, does the one who is not ill look after you? Dungshan said, I have the opportunity to look after him. The monk said, how is it when you look after him? Dungshan said, then I don't see that he has any illness. So this is a kind of a jewel mirror samadhi. And something to think about if you're caring for someone who's ill, or if you're worried about someone who's ill, or if you yourself become ill. And then of course, as happens in these cases, there's a lot of 
explanations and commentary. But in there, there's another story about Dungshan and a beautiful verse that I think will set us going. So, um, Dungshan also asked a monk, when I leave this leaking husk, will you go to meet me? When I die, will you meet me? The monk had no reply. Dungshan said in verse, though the students are many, not one is enlightened. The mistake lies in pursuing the paths of others' tongues. The mistake lies in pursuing the paths of others' tongues. If you want to be able to forget physical form and obliterate tracks, work hard to diligently walk in the void. Work hard to diligently walk in the void. We are offered this big empty field with armies waiting to clash. We don't know what's going to happen in the next moment, but we know something's going to happen. My teacher at one point, he, he goes through different stages of teaching and he'll go on with that teaching for a while. Uh, at one point he was always teaching, are you ready? He didn't mean, are you anxiously uh, buying toilet paper? <laughs> He meant, are you grounded? Are you relaxed? Are you looking at your intention? Are you embodying your vows? And do you walk, are you walking into this void of not knowing? John Donahue wrote this little verse when the reverberations of shock subside in you, may grace come to restore you to balance. May it shape a new space in your heart to embrace this illness as a teacher who has come to open your life to new worlds. We will not come out of our physical isolation the same people that we went in. Our world will be different and will be different. We don't know what that is. Are we ready? Can we embrace it? May our intention equally... Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.